you for the great love with which you loved us. You sent your son to die for us. Lord, as forgiveness of our sins, and you have sent your spirit as a seal of our inheritance. Lord, we pray now as we open your word that your spirit would be a work in our hearts, Lord, transforming us and drawing us closer to you, Lord, and making us more like Christ, whom we love. We ask this for the praise of your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you would open your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter one. I'm changing it on you a little bit. I'm just gonna read context. Sorry. I kinda knew that this morning too. <laughs> I hope you brought your Bibles. So uh, this summer, we're going to start a new series. We're taking a break from Matthew to do a series on spiritual disciplines. I really don't feel like it's a break, because if there's one thing that I've really felt about Matthew, about Jesus' teachings in Matthew, and it's been relentless the whole time, is that if you belong to the kingdom of God, this demands something from you, a behavior and a pattern in life. It requires us to live as his disciples. And from disciples, you kind of get the idea of discipline, that you're going to live a certain way. When, when Christ saves us, he kills us. We die on the cross with Christ. Our old nature passes away and a, a new nature uh, arises. So he, like, what we were before Christ must die. What we are with Christ must live. And so it's painful. It, it requires sacrifice. But it is absolutely worth it. So as we go through this series, we're going to touch on things such as reading your Bible, praying, evangelism, Christian community, repentance, worship, stewardship, serving, fasting, remembrance, and rest. Those are the topics we're going to cover this summer, and it certainly is not exhaustive, but it is reflective of things that should be characterized in a Christian's life in terms of actions. So um, perhaps you feel like you're a very disciplined individual. That is not me. I don't know if that is true of anybody. Like you've got these things down. Probably more like, oh no, here we go. Guilt trip summer. (laughs) I'm going on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you're meddling. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Okay, so if this is familiar territory, if you're in a sermon and you're like, oh yeah, totally, like this, like there's nothing new here for me. Well, to paraphrase what Paul said, to remind you of these things is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. The Bible, and all these places in the New Testament, Commands people to do things they're already doing. Like, I know you're doing this. Keep doing them. Keep encouraging and exhorting each other day by day. Because as Paul would also say in another scripture, if any of you thinks he stands, continue to be watchful, lest he fall. So, 
We need constant exhortation to these things. And for those of us, the rest of us, the majority of us, who feel like we're in for a guilt trip, we're going to start by talking about grace. That's today's sermon, grace. But one of the things the Bible calls us to do, this is important, this is the community aspect of what we're doing. The Bible calls us to provoke each other to good works. Provoke each other to good works. Not to neglecting to meet together, encouraging another, all the more as you see the day appearing. So if you're going through the summer and you're feeling a sting, that's probably a good thing. You're being provoked. And it means that you need to correct a pattern of behavior by the power of God in your life. Meanwhile, though, this is the part I want to emphasize right now. Meanwhile, we have a responsibility to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible tells us to be proactive. That we are to consider how we can encourage and provoke each other to good deeds. So, Hopefully, you're in community with other brothers and sisters. I mean, it's, that's what your week should be filled with at some point. And you should be asking each other the hard questions. How's your Bible reading? How's your prayer life? How's your repentance? God has given us each other to work with each other. Not to steal from the person, oh, I'm preaching it. Repentance. <laughs> my sermon coming up, um, to confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. You say, isn't it enough just to confess your sins to God? Well, no, God wants this to be a community act. You can confess your sins to one another. You need to be in relationship with people, asking each other, encouraging each other. That is why God has given us to each other. All right, so now, at the very outset, when we were going into this series, BJ had the right idea. We start with grace. Now, yes, disciplines are good works, things that we're going to do, but we need to be reminded from which the power comes. Who's going to get the glory when all these things start happening in our lives and we become great prayer warriors? Grace, grace is the good news about spiritual disciplines because it's not a futile task. So, I'm going to read Second uh, Timothy chapters one and two, which obviously means we're taking like the broad look at this this passage. So First Timothy one and two, and I'm just going to draw out some things from it. So starting in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy. And peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me as prisoners, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, on which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard it until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. And may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Winifus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived at Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on the day of the Lord. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. You, then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with the chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we'll stop there. This is Paul's last letter. He's reached the end of his life. He is in prison. And it is clear that he's going to be executed. He acknowledges it near the end of the book. He says that I am already being poured out as a drink offering. and The time of my departure has come. In the Old Testament, a drink offering was wine that you would pour on the altar. And it's a very vivid analogy of Paul's blood being spilt. He's going to be executed. Yet his death is not a meaningless death. It is a sacrifice. It is an act of worship. Now earlier when he was in jail, the first time in Philippians, he made a similar statement. He said, I don't think I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. Well, this time he's saying, I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. Now consider the fear that entails. Imagine the fear that the church has and losing the Apostle Paul. So not only is it a great loss, Paul, but it signifies a turn in Rome's attitude towards Christianity. Uh, Paul had been in prison before, but they let him go. 
as far as the Romans were concerned, Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. And so when the Christians showed up, it's like, they're Jews. Well, fast forward some time, who's getting saved? Gentiles and the masses. And churches are popping up all over the place. And among, among other things, um, when, I don't think this happened yet, but like, which also adds to it, when Rome sacks Jerusalem, the Christian says, we ain't staying. <laughs> we have no stake in the city. They said, really? So we don't call ourselves we not Jews. And they said, really? So, so Rome's attitude's turning, saying, oh, you were different. Now, the only religions they let exist were the religions they were okay with, and Christianity they were not okay with. So now, <laughs> Paul's going to be executed. And that means Rome is going to begin. The government is going to be cracking down. Local persecution was bad enough. But now the government seems to be officially joining in. And so it's this time of fear. Consider the fear on top of the sorrow that Timothy feels and the fact that he's losing Paul, his mentor, his father in the faith. And it's clear that God God intends for Timothy to continue on the work of preaching the gospel, of being itinerant, going to churches. And it seems that, from what we can tell, that Timothy... It's prone to be timid and shy and a little weak because Paul always has to keep telling him, you don't have to be timid, you don't have to be shy, you don't have to be weak. The only reason you say that is because someone has an issue. I bet you Timothy's like me, tries to avoid conflict. Easier. So these are things that Paul had encouraged Timothy to do, but who was Timothy compared to Paul? Who is Timothy compared to Paul? Okay, if you want to talk about someone who's truly disciplined, Paul, listen to this. He could say stuff like this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He could say with all sincerity that he served God with a clear conscience. He could, and get this, say honestly that he prayed for Timothy night and day on top of the fact that he was already praying for the churches night and day. (laughs) The guy gets stoned, comes out of being passed out, and walks back into the city. This guy is disciplined. He goes with hunger. He travels with hunger. He, like, works building tents and then preaches. I mean, this guy was intense. He'd probably drive me nuts. Slow down, Paul. You're too much. And so, like, who, how is Timothy going to measure up In light of all these concerns, Timothy is called to be disciplined. Be disciplined. And then look at these pictures in chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Look at these images I'm sure you are quite aware of that picture the diligence and dedication that's to characterize Timothy's life. Timothy, be like a soldier. Share in suffering. Do it. Don't get tangled up in civilian pursuits. Don't get caught up by the things of the world. Let them go. Be a soldier with one purpose. Be an athlete. An athlete who who trains and trains and trains and then competes according to the rules. Be a farmer who gets up before the break of dawn, works all day, gets crops. Like, come on, any one of those. 
hard enough. Like, be a soldier. Be an athlete. Be a farmer. Strive and work. Be a disciplined individual. All three of those people, soldiers, athletes, farmers, are all disciplined. What is this asking for? Hardship. Self-denial. Giving up of momentarily good things. They're good things, but giving them up. Not being distracted, pressing towards a goal. And none of this is easy. So now, if I were Timothy, I'd be thinking, where am I going to get the strength to do this? Where am I going to draw and get the unction to do this? So look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is the core command. Right before Paul says, be these things, he says this. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is Paul's advice. Okay, so now, a more rough and literal translation would be, keep on allowing yourself to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Keep doing that. So first of all, it's an ongoing act. Don't stop. This is not a one-time thing. Don't Just be strengthened by the, the graces in Christ Jesus. Do it, and you're good to go. No, this is a, you're going to keep doing this, and keep doing this, and keep doing this. It is also something that Paul seems to assume that Timothy's already doing. Like you're already doing this, but I encourage you, keep doing it. And the weirdest thing about it is it's a passive command. It's a passive command. It's not an active command. It's a passive command, which is really odd. But Paul's fond of doing it when it comes to grace. What is a passive command? Basically, he's saying, allow yourself to be strengthened. Allow yourself to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So, for example, think about Israel and the wilderness. Okay, place yourself in there, hot, dusty, Stinky, crowded. Ugh. Okay, and look, and you're thirsty. Like, where are you going to get water in the wilderness? Well, just like God provided a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke to guide him by day, He provided manna in the morning. He also provided a rock. Sounds a little weird. I guess it's all weird. A rock that followed them in the wilderness. I'm not sure what that looked like, but a rock that would follow them in the wilderness and provide water. Uh, cross, check me on that. That's First Corinthians 10. So this rock would follow them, and the rock would give water. All right. So you've been walking through the heat of the day. You need strength. So what do you do? You come to the fountain and drink. Now, who's strengthening you? God. He's the one who's providing for you. He's the one who gives you the water. What is required of you? Go to the rock, get a drink. That's a passive man. Daddy, I'm thirsty. Go get a drink of water. Go. Drink from the fountain that God has provided. So be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul speaks about grace a lot. And Timothy knows this. Timothy's been around Paul for years. He knows what Paul is getting at when it comes to grace. And as much as I have spent 
years reading the New Testament, years looking at Scripture, grace upon every look gets bigger and bigger and better and deeper. So in the, in the broad context of what grace is, this thing by which we're to be strengthened by, it has an external and an internal component to it. Basically, grace is things that God does. Grace is God's work. Now, outside of us, as it were externally, Paul uses grace to mean the fact that God acted in power through Jesus Christ to bring salvation. So in Titus 2.11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared. Something happened. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. God acted. But then it doesn't just stop there. It just doesn't, like, well, Jesus showed up. Worked in history. Grace. But grace also breaks into your life personally. Grace is not that God came and did something in history, it's that he takes what he did in history and applies it to your life. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. One of the best summary verses for what grace is, is 1 Corinthians 15.10, which says, this is Paul speaking, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, so who is he? Who was he? He was the persecutor of the church. What is he? He's an apostle of the church. So that whole transformation of from enemy to saved to apostle, he attributes it to grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, referring to the other apostles. Not that there's a one-upmanship here. He's just saying, honestly, facts be known, by the grace of God, I worked harder than all the other apostles. But it was not I, but the grace of God with me. So he says, these great things I've done, at the end of the day, I attribute to God working in me so that Paul can't boast. So one of the working definitions I have for grace, you've probably heard me say it before, but I like it. It really helps. Grace is God. God's power working in and through you. God's power working in and through you. When it comes to God's grace, because Paul would say, if he's going to tell him to do something, he says, by the grace of God, I say to you. Like, yeah, 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 I get it. I am a man, but by the grace of God I say to you. But then he turn and say to us, by the grace of God in you, do these things. And so God, by his grace, works salvation in our lives, and then he uses us to work salvation in other people's lives. Even if it's just service. Just mowing someone's lawn. Like that's God working in and through you and blessing other people. Now, other things about grace is that it's unmerited. 
It's God working in and through you, even though you did not earn this right, even though you were the enemy of God, even though now, right now, this week, today, we've sinned, we've disobeyed. Yet God still acts towards us in grace. And it's given abundantly. It's not a begrudging thing like, well, I guess I have to give you grace. That's what I say to my children. (laughs) I guess I have to show you grace because I have to. No. When God's loving kindness appeared, he saved us. When God so loved the world, he saved us. From heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride. That is the abundant love with which God loves us. Grace is something that's given joyfully, lovingly, and super abundantly. So that's the context of grace. It's like grace handed to you. But there's more to it. Now, because what am I thinking? I'm thinking, all right, Levi, summer's coming, spiritual discipline, got to get back to it. Discipline reading, discipline praying, discipline this, discipline that. I've got to do all these things. And I know myself. I know how long this is going to last. Like any new, I don't do your New Year's resolutions. Are you kidding? Like, it's just like, it's like how you, it's not why people get depressed in February. You say it's like, what, the winter? No. <clears throat> so one of the things a few years ago, I began looking, I always ask, how does the authors of Scripture motivate right behavior? It's a good question. How do the authors of Scripture motivate good behavior? Yeah. I really, like, that's really worth understanding. So, that's why I kind of grabbed a big chunk of passage to say, how did Paul motivate the right behavior with Timothy. Okay. So, let's do this. So, back up, chapter 1, verse 3. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see that Paul says, Timothy, do something. And we're going to see how Paul motivates, encourages him to do it. All right. So, verse 3. So I thank God who I served as my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember you, your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Louis, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason. Okay, so God's worked in your life, right, Timothy? Godly grandmother, grandly mother, brought the gospel into your life. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is yours to laying on of my hands. So here he goes. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is yours to laying on my hands. So how does he motivate it? Next phrase. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's not like, Timothy, you should do it because you should the right thing to do. Come on, man. Stop being a wimp. Get up. Do it. No, it's not how he says it. It's like, no, because God has done something in you. He did not give us a, and it says small spirit. You probably see that. The implication is that the next spirit is like Holy Spirit. Because later on in the, chap, in the paragraph, he says Holy Spirit. Anyways. 
God gave us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of power and love and self-control. In other words, you have the resources so you can live with these things. So you're not powerless, not controlled by hate or apathy. And you don't lack self-control. If you live that way, it'd be inconsistent with the resources available to you. Kind of a little family joke at the moment. It's like staying at a Motel 8 when you own like half the town. And like the big town's like, yeah, you could stay in the Motel 8 if you must. You don't have to. You've got bigger things. So you'd be living inconsistently with what God has done already in you. The resources that he has given you. Okay? The next exhortation. Verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as a prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Oh, okay, so now this gets rough. Like, what's one thing? Like, do things you're gifted at better. Gotcha. That's easy. But now he's saying, suffer. And don't be ashamed of the scorn and the mockery of the gospel. He tells him to do it by the power of God. So again, he points to God as the power and the resource to do this, which we know is achievable because he has a spirit of power, love, and self-control. So then he motivates it. So here's the motivation by explaining the scope of the benefits of the gospel. This gospel is totally worth it. Why? Verse 9. So he just starts unpacking the gospel. Who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, this gospel is something that's grounded in the past, like past, past, like before the ages began past. So in the past, he he gave us a holy calling. In the present, he saved us. And probably in Paul's time, Christ came and appeared. So that's past for us. He saved us and manifested that to us, and in the future, he has brought life and immortality. Like, do you have anything else that has a scope of from eternity past to eternity future that you can be rock-solid grounded on? You want to talk about investments? This thing's been compounding since the ages began. Now, it's usually at these points when people say, Paul's on a sidetrack, Paul's on a rant. He got all caught up. Like, no, he's doing this on purpose. He's intentionally, like, he's not, he's motivating behavior by showing the value of the thing we've been given, by showing the power of God in action. So you think, like, a God who called us from eternity past, saved us through the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and is going to save us in the future, like, if he can do that, then he's going to help you get through this. If God's done that in history, he's going to get you through this momentary trial, as dark as it may seem. He goes on, verse 11, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which has been entrusted to me. So there you go. Here's how I'm doing it. 
I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The powers of hell cannot stand against the gospel. So you, Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. You, you, these truths, you need them. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And it's really interesting that he said guard and guard because he says, I am convinced that God is able to guard until that day was been entrusted to me. And he turns to Timothy in verse 14 and says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And he, he mirrors that language. Like these things are important. There's a reason why Paul gets all freaked out when false doctrine gets in the churches. Like, eh, who cares? People with PhDs can't agree on these things. <laughs> Like all these opinions, we don't really need to come down on these issues. Paul's like, are you kidding me? Like, you're poisoning the well from which you drink. Why would you do that? You need these truths like nothing else. Why would you allow false doctrine to creep in? It's like, well, as long as we're doing good things, you won't. You need the truths of the gospel. So you, you see the pattern. How does Paul motivate Timothy to good works? Hard works. Discipline works. Works for which Timothy's going to suffer for. He focuses attention on the gospel and all the implications of the gospel. He shows the might and the wisdom and the power of God displayed in his saving work. He says, look at everything God's done for us in Christ. Look at the Holy Spirit who's been given to you, to you, in order to accomplish his saving works both in your life and in the lives of others. Look what he is doing. Do you think these are things Timothy already knew? Do you think these are things that Timothy already knew? Of course. Paul would send Timothy to go teach them the churches. Like he's, he's in a sense, the master. He knows these things forward and backward. Yet, Paul insists that he remembers them. That's what he says in chapter 2. Remember, remember Christ Jesus. Now, remembering means you take something that you knew in the past and you draw it and you make it to bear on the moment. These, These are truths that need to continually be on our mind. These are truths that we need to, as someone said, not just know. Scripture isn't something you just read. No, Scripture is something you delight in and meditate on. We need them when we sit at home or when we're commuting to work. We need them when we rise up and we lay down. We need them in all the watches of the night. You need these things to bear on every moment of your life. By focusing on the gospel, Paul is going for our hearts. He's going for our hearts. What drives you? What motivates you? What gets you up in the morning? What's your hope? What are your desires? 
What are you pressing for? When you have blank moments in the day, what are you thinking about? <laughs> those spare thoughts. Where are those going? To the gospel? To the, to the glorious inheritance of the saints? We need to be shaped by the gospel day in, day out. We need it to be the core of our consciousness, the center of our affections, which is why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's a natural response. If these are the things that are exciting you, scripture will not be drudgery, prayer would not be hard, evangelism would be natural, community would be refreshing, all these things would be natural. That's the way the gospel works. Don't try harder. You need better affections. Allow yourself to be continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, now, this is Timothy. That was Timothy. This is us. He's a minister of the gospel, following after Paul. And this is us. What he's being called to is a bit different than what we're being called to. Well, not so much. Like Timothy, we have a holy calling. We belong to one body. We're pressing to one goal. We each have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and we're commanded by God to use them. Like Timothy, we all face temptations. We have hearts that go astray. We shrink back instead of going boldly forward. We, like Timothy, are face the daily barrage of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, and the daily seductions to be friends with this world, perpetually. I mean, just think of everything America stands for, entertainment and then advertisement. So it's just, just come on. Enjoy the, our fares and our wares, and you'll be happy. It's like a constant war for your soul. And like Timothy, we will face cultural persecution. If we truly live the Christian life as disciples, if we are truly following Christ, we're truly sharing the gospel and living the Christian ethic of love, then you are going to see persecution. Which that's a big word. I mean, maybe you're not resisting the point of shedding blood. But there will be a cost to it. And it will come from the left, the right, the center. Because everybody is offended by the gospel. It's a universal offense. God's kingdom is a front to any other system of thought, any other style of life. And it would naturally provoke insult, ridicule, and outrage. So, if we all have the same holy calling, if we will face the same temptations, if we are faced with our own set of persecutions, then we, like Timothy, need to be reminded of the abundance of God's grace and be exhorted again and again to live disciplined lives. So, as we go into the summer, let's make much of it. Because there is undoubtedly something we, you and I, need to hear from these series, some type of corrective action 
There are things that we are probably, possibly already doing, but we need to be encouraged all the more as we see the day appear. And when we do this, we recognize that it is God working in us to do and to will according to his good pleasure. So all glory be to Christ. So as we share in communion, if the ushers would come forward in the worship team.